The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 26, the apostle writes, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. I hope by now you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Our study of the New Testament church continues today as we're studying the two ordinances of the church. The first of these is baptism, which we studied last week. And the second is the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And in the 11th chapter of Corinthians is the familiar passage in which the Apostle Paul instructed the Corinthian church in the observance of the Supper. And so if you have this passage open, I want you to observe the first phrase of the 23rd verse. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. There's not another statement that Paul could have made that would more impress the Corinthian church with the magnitude of what he's about to tell them. These are instructions that came from the Lord. Now, we've learned in our study of the church that Paul was the foremost apologist of church doctrine. Uh, Of course, all the apostles, it's true, were schooled in the various aspects of the faith, but there were none like Paul that uh, taught on the doctrine of the church and was an apostle who was chosen apart from the original twelve. It's from Paul that we learn about church organization, we learn church decorum, we learn about leadership, qualifications for pastors and deacons, we learn about the proper roles of men and women in the church, we learn about the gifts of the Spirit and how they are to be used in the church. And although Paul wasn't a part of the original 12 apostles, and he wasn't present when the Lord gave the disciples the Lord's Supper. He was given a special revelation of it, and he becomes the foremost teacher on the protocols of these two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's Paul who explained the symbolism of baptism, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We looked at that last week from Romans chapter 6. Uh, He shows us that when we are buried in baptism, that it is a figure that we have died to our old way of life and that we have risen to walk in a new life that is uh, a new life of a new creature in Jesus Christ. It's also Paul who expanded upon and, and explained the teachings of Christ in the institution of the Supper. In the first part of 1 Corinthians, he used the Supper as a disciplinary mechanism 
And here in this 11th chapter, he is careful to, to correct the misuse and the misappropriation of this most important symbol. He said, I have received of the Lord. And that's our cue that what comes next is by the Lord's command. We do not deviate from the Lord's commands. The supper is an ordinance of Christ. Now, again, the ordinances are two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these are two memorial ordinances that Christ gave the church to present to us important pictures concerning our faith in Christ. Now, just to remind you, the the word ordinance means to put in order. It relates to something that has been decreed or commanded. And so we find that baptism is commanded in the Great Commission. And Jesus gave that before he ascended into heaven. And then the Lord's Supper was commanded on the night that Jesus observed the Passover meal with his disciples. And the Passover symbolized that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who is sacrificed for our sins. And the Passover type ended in the thing that it signified, which is the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus told the disciples to observe this new meal as a remembrance of him until he comes. Now, in this passage, Paul explains what Christ did on the night that he was taken, that he was seized. And he quotes from Jesus as the Lord explained that the bread is a picture of his body that was broken for us. The juice that is in the cup symbolizes his blood that was given for the forgiveness of our sins. I want to say by way of introduction that that my teaching on the Lord's Supper today might not be at all what you expect. There are many aspects of the Supper that we could discuss, aspects that would probably, I'm sure, be more devotional than what you'll hear today. But I'm going to take a different tact as we look at this. You might call this a more mechanical view of the supper because I want to talk to you about methodology. And that's something that I do find present throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. When we speak of ordinances, it would be proper to say that anything that Christ commanded is an ordinance. The word means to decree or command or it means God ordained. But as we look at this in a theological and a historical context, we differentiate these two ordinances. Baptists have differentiated them as the ones and the only ones that are to be observed in the church. Now, I find it interesting that in the frontier days of our country, uh, opinions differed about how many ordinances were to be observed. In the early days of our country, uh, Baptists were closely aligned without the the many groups of Baptists that we find today. And and I might say that I'm talking about Baptists because that's what we are. And we are Baptists because we believe that we most closely align with the New Testament church and that we are the successors to the church that Christ began. And that is a logical and necessary claim. It's not a boisterous claim. In fact, if we claim to be the Lord's church, then what would we do but believe and practice what was done in the New Testament? And what would we do but adhere to New Testament doctrine? Baptists in the formation of our country uh, nearly all held to the Philadelphia Confession of Faith that was of 1742 and to the doctrines of grace. 
Baptists were not divided on the doctrines of grace as they are now, but they were divided on the number of ordinances that should be observed. Many in the frontier regions uh, believed that there were up to nine ordinances to observe in the church, but most held to only two. Now, you will still find Baptists in some of the rural Appalachian areas of our country that practice a third ordinance, which is foot washing, but those are few and far between, and so mostly Baptists today are settled on only two ordinances. And then I might also note that we use the term ordinances, ordinance. Uh, we don't use the term sacraments. We observe the supper as a memorial. It's a symbol of what happened in the past, while others, like Roman Catholics, have their sacraments. And sacraments are a means of grace in the present. The Roman Catholics and some Protestants have sacraments because they believe that there is some impartation of grace in the participation. And that is especially acute in Catholicism, as they insist that the Mass, which is their version of the Supper, they believe that the Mass is a means of salvation, along with the other sacraments that they keep. They believe that when a priest consecrates the bread and the wine, that it is transformed into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. And they believe that they must eat Christ's flesh, they must drink his blood for their salvation. Protestants have also a mystical view, and you might note that the word sacrament is taken from a word that originally means mystery. Uh, Protestants call them sacraments because they are a means of grace. Although they don't believe that the bread and the wine are the literal flesh and blood, like the Catholics do, but nonetheless, they many of them believe that it is a way of conveying grace. But we reject those ideas. We call them ordinances because they are not literal. They are symbolic. We don't receive grace from them. Now, you you that have observed the supper, members here, you may you may achieve or have a sense of peace by taking the supper. You you might feel some consecration by taking the supper. You might be humbled by taking the supper, but there isn't any grace inherent in taking it. Baptism symbolizes the death of the old man and the new life that we have in Christ, while the Lord's Supper symbolizes the death of Christ and the new life that we have and the necessity to feast upon him, to feast upon him and to be nourished by our attachment to him. Well, we notice something in this as we read in 1 Corinthians especially, that in the observance of the supper, we notice that the ordinances are intended for the assembly of the church and that this ordinance belongs to the church. It is a church ordinance. Now, regarding that, where is the Lord's Supper to be observed. We'll look at that first today, the place of the Lord's Supper. And very simply stated, the place of the Supper is in the church. W.J. Burris, in his book, The Lord's Table, made an important observation. He says, if all could understand that the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance, specifically and exclusively a church ordinance, it would clear, it would clear up much confusion and do away with much criticism of the Baptist position regarding it. And to that statement, I would add that if people understood what the church is, then they would have a much clearer picture of who is qualified to observe the supper and where it should be done. 
Now, if you want a discussion on that part of it, you can refer back to the sermons on the nature of the church. So we take a, of course, a biblical perspective of this because this is where we must go to understand how that the Lord would have us observe this important part of our church life. Christ instituted the supper for his church. And it's only among the born-again believers of the church that the supper can be celebrated. It was first given to the eleven apostles as they gathered on the evening of Christ's final Passover. First Corinthians 12:28 states that and God has set some in the church first apostles. And so when Jesus sat with the apostles, that was his first church. In our text, Paul here is speaking to the church at Corinth, and he describes what he received from the Lord by special revelation, and this was to instruct the Corinthian church, and by extension, all churches with clarity about the meaning and the purpose of the supper. Now, it's clear in the New Testament that the Lord's Supper is for the church, and the church is not the church except as it assembles. That is the meaning of ecclesia. God's people are coveted together in church membership, and only as they assemble can they together memorialize the Lord's death. Well, since the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance, this tells us that there are restrictions that are placed upon it. And those restrictions could take us into different areas. They could take us into a discussion of the proper elements that we are to use. We see that Jesus used unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. That restricts us from using crackers and Coke or Pepsi, if you prefer. We can't use those. I've already mentioned the restriction that it is for the church But here's where I think that we need to drill down just a little bit deeper on this part of the discussion. We need to be correct about this. First, the place of the Lord's Supper is the church. It is to be observed among the membership of the Lord's church. So let's expand on that. Number two in our outline today is the participants in the Lord's Supper. Who are the ones that should participate in the supper when it's observed? Is everyone invited to join in, or should we differentiate between those who may be in attendance? How many times we have guests in our church that are not members of the church. We sometimes have members that come and visit us from other Baptist churches. There may be some that come from other denominations. There may be some that are not baptized. There may be some that are not Christians at all. The question is... Are we to invite all of these to the supper indiscriminately? There are two different positions on that. And churches separate along the lines of whether we should practice open communion or closed communion. Sometimes we call that restricted, unrestricted, and restricted communion. Now, I'm going to look at that just a little bit differently today, and I want to call these two viewpoints the open view and the Baptist view. Now, first is the open view of communion, and that would simply say that all baptized believers are invited to the supper. And the open view has changed somewhat over the years to a practice that doesn't in any way agree with the New Testament. There are some churches that make no distinction in whether a person is saved or lost as to whether 
they can participate in the supper. I mean, it's, it's as if that it never crossed to anyone's mind that there might be people that attend church that have never made a profession of faith in Christ. And they allow and they encourage anyone that attends to participate in the observance, even though they may never have professed faith in Christ. And so they partake of the symbols without having any part of Christ through faith for their salvation. And they don't have baptism and they have no identification with him. And that is completely foreign to anything that we would read in the New Testament. Participation in the supper indicates that the person knows Christ by faith, that he is a partaker of the divine nature, and that he has been born again by the Holy Spirit of God. And that must happen to have relationship with Christ. You must have that or you have no relationship with Christ. The symbolism means nothing without the reality of the thing that is symbolized. There is no theological or historical precedent for an unbeliever taking the Lord's Supper. This is a faith ordinance. It is a relationship ordinance. Now, those that in the past who practiced the open view would not have permitted what has happened in the modern church. At least they would insist upon this much, that before admittance to the supper, there must be a profession of faith and there must be baptism. Now, if you look in your Bible here at 1 Corinthians 11, verse number 27, it says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, Paul is giving that warning to believers in partaking of the supper unworthily, and that statement would be virtually meaningless if unbelievers were permitted to take the supper. The scripture says that anyone who denies Christ is an infidel. The believer or unbeliever rejects the blood of the cross. He rejects the body of Christ. He doesn't consider it to be worthy of his belief. He refuses the Sacrifice of Christ for sin. The unbeliever, according to scripture, is an idolater and he is hostile to God. It is impossible to honor Christ in the supper while at the same time rejecting the worth of his infinite sacrifice. So in no way could we knowingly permit unbelievers to take the supper to us that would, and to God. That would be an act of blasphemy. This is a fact that is recognized. It's been acknowledged by all Christians through the centuries. Even those that favored open communion would never extend it to unbelievers. Well, when I say this, it comes with a bit of qualification because the more common view in Protestant churches is that they will allow the supper to those who are in the covenant community of believers. And that would mean also the children of believers that have been baptized by sprinkling or effusion, and they're permitted to take even though they've not yet been regenerated. And because they are admitted to what they call the visible church through baptism, they are eligible for communion. They also allow other evangelical churches that have received their form of baptism to participate. And that's, that's really an interesting point for us as Baptists. Uh, the Protestant churches and Baptists agree that baptism is a prerequisite to church membership and to participation in the supper. We have no disagreement on that point. Protestants, though, believe in infant baptism and sprinkling, and they think that is acceptable, while Baptists believe there is no valid baptism 
unless the person is a believer and that baptism is by immersion. And so the logical conclusion must be that Protestants sprinkled and or uh, uh, as adults or babies are not truly baptized. And so they're not eligible for the communion. And then there are others who believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are not correlated in any way. And so it only requires faith as a prerequisite. A few years ago, I interviewed a Baptist missionary on this subject. He filled out one of our missionary questionnaires, and this is one of the questions that we ask. Would you knowingly administer the Lord's Supper to an unbaptized believer? And he said, yes, because there should be no restriction on the communion. Well, he was open communion, and and he didn't believe church membership was even necessary to to the communion. Now, to me, that registered such a grievous misinterpretation or understanding of the church that I couldn't support a missionary to start churches without understanding what the church is. This is a wrong viewpoint that has the effect of destroying communion as a church ordinance. It changes the symbolism of the supper and makes it just a sign of fellowship. And then there are others who believe, well, none of this actually matters. It's up to you to make up your own mind about whether you participate. The church has no say in that. It's an individual decision. Well, we we strongly deny all those positions because we do believe it is the church's responsibility to guard the Lord's table. It's the church as a body that interprets the truth, and it's the church that has the authority, not the individual. So we would say that the open view of communion lacks theological and textual support. It compromises the church and the ordinances. The supper is more restricted. It is not open to everyone, regardless of their salvation, baptism, or church membership. Now, I want to move on here to the Baptist view of communion. And I call it the Baptist view because this is the way that our churches have understood it for centuries since the time of Christ, going back all that time. And I'm going to give you what I would call an historical view with the understanding that some Baptist churches are not historical. We are. We understand and we are unashamed to be called historical Baptists. And so we do believe that there are restrictions for participation. They are biblical restrictions, and they should be observed. We believe in closed or close communion in which we make it our first requirement that the participant is baptized, a baptized member of a New Testament Baptist church. We are restricted communionists. Now, let let me qualify the meaning of this because certain assumptions are made when we say this. We put the order of participation of the supper this way. The communicant must be regenerated, a regenerated, baptized person. We do believe in credo-baptism. We covered that last week. We deny that any lost person can participate for the reasons I stated earlier. He must be baptized, by which we assume by the baptism he is regenerated, since only believers are to be baptized. Once again, credo-baptism, which means I believe, I, I believe in Jesus Christ, therefore I may be baptized. It must be a New Testament qualified baptism. It would deny participation of anyone who has a faux baptism, either by the wrong mode 
or an unqualified administrator. So this means that no pedo-baptist can be admitted. Now, I don't know if you understand the word pedo-baptist, but that would mean someone who has been baptized as an infant. That does not qualify a person uh, to be, that is not a real baptism, and so we consider pedo-baptist to be unbaptized. Now, let, let me stop here just to explain that Protestants will allow Baptists to their communion because they accept immersion as one of the acceptable modes. They mostly practice sprinkling, but they say immersion, well, that would be okay because they don't believe the mode is important. R.L. Dabney, who was a very capable and learned Presbyterian theologian in the 19th century, argued that the logic of Baptists was consistent. Now, he didn't agree that we were right on this, but he argued that our logic was right. He argued that this could be the only consistent position we can take if baptism is a prerequisite for the supper. We can't admit anyone that we don't believe is truly baptized. But then going on, we say you must be born again, you must be baptized, and you must be a member of a New Testament Baptist church. Now, at this point, another distinction is made in the historical position of Baptist. Among those that believe in a restricted communion, some are more restrictive than others, and so there are two sub-views that define how restricted we must be. I want to give you these two few points on the degree of restrictions. The first would be the closed communion view, C-L-O-S-E-D, the closed communion. Some say that you only need to be a member of another Baptist church of like faith and order. So if you are a visiting member of another Baptist church and you are in fellowship with that church and our church, then you may take the communion. So these are Baptists who have a closed communion view. In other words, the communion is closed to anyone but Baptist churches. Now, before I give you this next one, I'm going to advise you that People reverse these positions in their explanation of them. And in my studies and going back uh, several years ago when I was looking into this and trying to determine which which one of these is the uh, not the proper view but the proper uh, usage of words, I found that these things over time have been reversed by some people. So if you don't have the have the uh, same the same terminology as I do here, you can't understand the positions that I'm going to present and you'll understand what they are and, and what we choose. So the second view that we would look at is the close communion view. The close communion view is the more restrictive. So I would say that we are close communionists because we believe that only those who are in close fellowship with the church can partake of the communion. In other words, the only ones that would be permitted to the table are those that we can observe and judge their qualifications of fellowship. And as a body, the only ones that we can judge and have any authority over are those who are members of this church. We don't have any authority over any others. Now, at first you might think, well, that that's pretty radical. That's a tough policy. It seems so unkind and unchristian. Well, you need to hear me out if you're wondering about this before you pass judgment on this position. Let me say that there is good reason. And it's not that we think that we are better than other Christians in other churches. 
That has nothing to do, this has nothing to do with evaluating the salvation of anyone outside of our church. We don't propose to pass judgment on the spiritual condition of anyone that is not a member of this church. And that's really the whole point. Two things are critical here. That the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance, and this local body of believers is called the Berean Baptist Church. It is a complete body of Christ in this location. We have a definite membership of believers that we have coveted together to do God's work in this place. And there is a bond between us as members that is not the same as we have with those who are on the outside. Now, again, that has nothing to do with an assessment of anyone's spirituality. It has nothing to do with assessing. It's not our purpose to assess whether they are saved. This has to do with the internal assessment of those who are in fellowship of the membership. We are to guard the purity of the church as the body of Christ, and it's impossible for us to do that when we don't know anything about those that we're not regularly able to observe their lives. So let me point out two, or rather three, important observations that vindicate the practice of close communion. The first, I would say, is Jesus' example. His example vindicates close communion. On the night that Jesus instituted the supper, there were only 12 men present. These were the 12 apostles. By comparing gospel accounts, it seems that Judas, who was the imposter, the betrayer, an unsaved man, left to betray Christ before the supper began. Jesus had not reached the part of the Passover meal where the supper was instituted, and Judas was not present when Jesus gave the ordinance. So that leaves us with 11 men with Jesus there, and these were the charter members of the first church. Other saved people were not there. We do know that John baptized, John the Baptist baptized many converts, but these other disciples were not present. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was not at this, at this supper. Mary, And her sister Martha, Lazarus, their brother, were not there. The women later at the tomb were not there. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, who were secret disciples, were not there. The 70 that we read about in Luke 10 were not there. Let me just read that scripture, Luke 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whether himself would come. These are all other people that had been saved, and yet the Lord restricted the supper to the 11 apostles that were there because they were the beginning of his church. He didn't invite others, not the man who owned the house or others that were added to the number before the day of Pentecost. Well, some say, well, no, we shouldn't restrict the the supper because it is the Lord's table. We are to not to restrict it because he can invite whomever he wants. And we say, exactly, that is exactly right, precisely. And we're not authorized to invite anyone but the ones that he already demonstrated that we can invite. And these are the members of the church. Secondly, Unity of doctrine vindicates close communion. Now, if you look in your Bible at the verses immediately preceding our text, 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 18, For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved 
may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, in one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, one of the main stipulations for the proper observance of the Supper is unity of doctrine. How would it be possible for us to have unity of doctrine with people that we know nothing about? We haven't examined their doctrine. We don't ask people when they come into the church to fill out a doctrinal questionnaire before they attend our services. We're unsure of their doctrine, and they're unsure of ours. We're not unified in doctrine with Protestant churches. We are a Baptist church because of doctrine. That's the reason we're not Presbyterians. It's the reason we're not Methodists. We're not a generic community church because our doctrine makes us different and defines who we are. We believe Baptist doctrine. We're also peculiar in certain doctrines, such as the one that I'm teaching you now. Now, in, in our church, you're taught by me. I'm the pastor. I hope most of the time you agree with what I preach. If I stick with the Bible, agree with me. And so as members of the same church, we agree to agree. On personal preferences, we might not agree. But I do hope that we agree enthusiastically on fundamental articles of the faith. In this passage, Paul says disagreement on doctrine will divide us. And when we take the supper, we are to be united, not divided. Thirdly, church discipline vindicates close communion. Now, I want you to pay close attention to this because this is, I think, the real clincher for close communion. If you'll just turn back a few pages to the fifth chapter, 1 Corinthians, we'll look at verse 11. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one, know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. I don't find this to be all that difficult. We're talking about what takes place in the church. I know there were some who say, well, he's not even talking about the Lord's Supper. I disagree with that. But even if he's not, he restricts our fellowship with people who commit all these different sins. So certainly uh, the Lord's Supper would be more restricted even than that. So we can't use that as a as a something to obviate the text. The church has no jurisdiction is what Paul is saying here. The church has no jurisdiction over those that are outside the church. We can only judge those who are part of this body, and we don't care to pass judgment on any others. How could we know the lifestyle of someone who just walks in off the street, or uh, as so to speak, or someone who comes from another church? How do we know anything about their lifestyle? How do we know if they if they are keeping the standard of the supper that we find in Scripture? And it's evident from the Scriptures there is a standard. From reading this 11th chapter, there was a standard set for the proper observance. So we see this list of sins in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that are showstoppers for people that we can fellowship with. So you see what we have here? There is restriction on the church that we are not to eat with people that are guilty of these sins. Now, those that are outside of the church, we don't care to track them down to find out if they're doing these things. That is not of concern to us because that is not our business. We don't accuse anyone of immorality by restricting the supper. What we're saying is we don't know. 
We don't know about your life. We're incapable of obeying the Lord's command because we can only deal with those that are in close covenant, those that are in close fellowship with the church. That's the membership. So how could we have outsiders when we have no command in Scripture to discipline them? So we can't participate in communion with those that we have no jurisdiction over. Now, again, I want to tell you, we're not saying that others are not Christians. This is not that claim at all. We do not say they are not Christians. We don't say they aren't good people. In fact, we might find that they live better lives. If we could examine it, they live better lives, some of them, than people in our church. They may be dedicated more to the Lord than people in our church. Point is, we don't know. We have fellowship. That it's close here. We observe each other's lives. We can guard the sanctity of the supper and the purity of the church only within the membership. And so we fully expect that members of other Baptist churches are in fellowship with their church and they will take the supper in their church. And if I'm present in one of their meetings when the supper is observed, I don't partake. If offered, I politely decline. Now, it is our practice here. That when we take the Lord's Supper, I'm not inspecting everybody who's in the congregation and telling the uh, deacons as they administer the supper, now you watch out for that person over there. Don't you dare give that person a cup. Stay away from them. Stay away from that side of the church because those might be visitors on that side of the church. I don't do that. I don't do that. Uh, I don't ask people to present a membership card. We don't slap anybody's hands. We're not angry if non-church members participate. But we don't believe that you should. We, we, you see how we interpret the scriptures on this and what we expect is that people will honor our position. That is our position on this. We teach that and we put a disclaimer in our, in our uh, literature on the nights that we observe the Lord's Supper. And I hope that people would respect it. Well, let me conclude the study today. There's much more that we could talk about here. We could, uh, address uh, the heresy of the mass that I talked about a moment ago and the Roman doctrine of Roman church doctrine of transubstantiation. We could extend that to the erroneous view of the Lutherans who believe in consubstantiation. And maybe you'd like to know about those things and what those things mean, but that's not my purpose today. I'm going to let that pass and perhaps we can take up those views at another time. So I want to te- speak to you thirdly about the preparation for the Lord's Supper. And this is a good place for me to follow up on a few of the previous comments. We're not trying to judge anyone on the outside. We couldn't if we wanted to because we don't have a basis to do it. So I would say that it's far better for you to judge yourself and prepare yourself than it is for me or any other person in the church to find it necessary to disinvite you. Notice this familiar part of verses 28 and 29 of our text in 1 Corinthians 11. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. How should we prepare for the supper? The answer is short. Self-examination. It's the duty of every born-again baptized church member to examine himself before he comes to the Lord's Supper. And let me tell you, that's not a night of examination. This is a 
daily examination. That you should live daily as if every day was Sunday and that you were in church and that you were ready to observe the supper. Before we partake, we always ask that everyone bow their heads and silently confess their sins. But truthfully, it should be the way that you live all the time. You should live in constant confession of sin so that you don't invite chastisement that we see here experienced by the Corinthian church. To live in sin and partake of the supper is to make a mockery of the death of Christ for sin. This is one of the things the Corinthians did. They brought their sins to the table and they paid a heavy price for it. So here are two questions to ask yourself in preparation for the supper. The first is, am I right with God? Am I right with God? Is there anything that hinders your fellowship with him? Are you doing anything that is not God-honoring and pleasing. Now, I'm going to ask maybe an embarrassing question for some, although I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Do you tithe? I wouldn't tempt the Lord by saying, Lord, I believe in the sacrifice of your body and your blood, but it's not worth my money. I can't show my gratitude by not giving back what is already yours. I'd be ashamed of a proposal like that. Christ gave his body and his blood, but I can't give anything? And there are a lot of other areas, many areas of obedience that you should be you should be consciously and conscientiously aware of. Second question is, am I right with my fellow Christians? Is there anyone in the church that you have a grudge against? Is there someone in the church that you would not give the time of day? Remember this, you'll be with them for eternity. Maybe not if you don't have a forgiving heart. Forgiveness and reconciliation, those are marks of true Christians. So I would tell you, get right with others, because if you're not right with them, you're not right with God. Christ forgave you far more than you can forgive someone else. When you come to the table, here is demonstrated the selfless sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. How can we come to the table being unforgiving? Unforgiving. The Apostle Paul would say that an attitude like that borders on the profane. It does despite unto the spirit of grace. And then finally, I'll say that because the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the church, it is to be observed. We must do it. It is a command. Now, I've known Christians who admit that their lives were not right at some particular time, and they thought that they would be noble and virtuous. By refusing to take the supper. That shows how much I follow scripture. I refuse to take the supper. There is nothing noble and virtuous in substituting one sin for another. The Christian is required to be right with God and with others. And if you won't get right so that you can partake, you compound the sin. Is it right to refuse Christ? The answer is no. Is it right not to picture the Lord's death until he comes? The answer is no. Is it right not to be humbled by a sacrifice? Do you see this? If you don't get right with God, you haven't done a righteous thing by refusing the supper. You have the attitude, I think, that let's do evil that good may come. The Lord doesn't consider the refusal of disobedient Christians a righteous act. That is an exceedingly wicked act. The Lord's Supper is a time of sweet fellowship. Our celebrations are not boisterous. We're quiet. We're peaceful. 
Except for some soft music, there is silence. A pin can be heard if it's dropped on the carpet. That allows us to quietly reflect on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took bread. He blessed it. He gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat. This is my body. This do in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant. Drink this. And as often as you do, remember me. And friends, I'll tell you that as the elect of God, as the beloved of God, as the redeemed in Christ, he remembered you. He went to the cross And when he did, you were on his mind. And the supper is this solemn, touching, deeply moving contemplation of our Savior who bore the wrath of God for our sins. We have reason for what we do. We're thoughtful about what we do in the supper and we want to do it Christ's way. It's a great privilege when we come to his table to honor the Lord's death until he comes. Maybe this is a strange Sermon for a Sunday that we don't observe the Lord's Supper. So catalog it. Keep the notes in your Bible or whatever you might do. And and remember what we've said about this. And I might mention, too, in the end of this sermon that as always we're happy to answer questions about this. We don't want anyone to leave wondering and scratching your head. What was all that about? And some might. I don't know. So we're happy to explain everything that we have put before you today. We honor the Lord in the ordinances. We are commanded to keep the ordinances. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthian church there in that second verse of chapter 11, he says, I appreciate that you care for me. I appreciate that you have remembered me. I also appreciate, he says, that you've kept the ordinances. Now, they were wrong in some of the things that they did, but they believed in keeping the ordinances. And we are a Baptist church that believes it too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise your name for the wonderful works that you do and the opportunities that you give us to serve you. And then these ordinances that you've given to help us to remember what you did. In baptism, we see how that you were crucified, buried, that you went into the tomb. Three days you arose again, just as you said, and then... As we trust in you and receive this identification with you, we show that we have risen to walk in this new life that you've given us in Jesus Christ. And then for the Lord's Supper, what a blessed privilege it is to sit at the Lord's table and remember the night that Jesus was crucified and that close fellowship that he had with his disciples. Even John, as he leaned on Jesus' breast, called himself the disciple that Jesus loved. Certainly we know he loved all the disciples and he loves each and every person who's a true believer in him and and members of his church. We know that Christ loves all believers. Lord, we just pray that we would honor you in what we do in our obedience. Help us to obey you in all things. Open our eyes to understand the truth of the gospel and how that you have called us to covenant together in church fellowship, in church membership, to carry out the ordinances that you have given. Thank you, Lord, for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Broner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707 
584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.